This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. This is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please consider joining the What School Could Be global online community. Go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, my guest is Allie Pressel, a truly remarkable and impressive educator who teaches, guides, mentors, and coaches young people in the St. John's County School District in Florida. She has a master's in science from University of Maryland and a bachelor's in environmental sciences and human ecology from Rutgers University. But the best way to introduce Allie is to read from the National Geographic website where she is listed as an emerging explorer. And I quote, Allie Pressel is an environmental sciences educator dedicated to bringing science exploration to students through project-based learning and outdoor field studies. She is a leader in career academy education and develops innovative ways to engage students in their local communities and help them make connections between the natural world and their personal human stories. She actively collaborates with community partners to ensure real-world applications of natural resources management, citizen field science, and internship opportunities for her students. Integrating geographic information systems technologies and working closely with community geo-mentors, she prepares students with skills that will serve them in their future careers. She has a love for travel and a deep desire to bring geographic experiences into her classroom. Her favorite moments involve traveling with students on international field studies broadening their global mindset and fostering a love for exploration. She is a mentor teacher and places great value on educator collaboration to ensure student success. A member of the Teacher Advisory Council with National Geographic Education, she frequently shares National Geographic initiatives to enhance student experiences and enable them to become future leaders and change makers of tomorrow. And now, here's my conversation with Allie Pressel. Allie Pressel, welcome to the show. Hi, Josh. This is a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, listeners, I'm going to ask Allie one of the biggest questions I've ever asked a guest on this show, but to hear it and her response, you have to listen all the way to the end. Sorry, friends, it's a dirty trick, but there you go. So, before we get to that last question, which will be a while from now, Allie, I'd love to start this conversation with you talking about sea turtles, who apparently are responsible for your love of environmental education. I encounter sea turtles every morning on my long exercise swims in the ocean here in Hawaii. So I thought it'd be cool for our listeners to get to know you by having you talk about sea turtles and the meaning, their meaning in your life and your life's journey. Yes. Wow. Thank you for asking that question, Josh. I tell my students that my time with sea turtle conservation was at a different life in a different time, but it really did kick off my love for environmental education. I had the opportunity to spend a few summers in coastal North Carolina working with sea turtle conservation efforts. And in that time, I had started to speak to youth in the community there about the importance of why sea turtles mattered along that coastline, their nesting patterns, how there was a lot of curiosity from the community for what were the sea turtles coming up on the beaches during the summer months and why were they there and how did coastal conservation matter to Mm -hmm. them and to their cyclical 
patterns each year as they would come onto the beaches to nest. And during that time, I ended up falling in love with environmental education, the education aspect, teaching and sharing about ecosystems and the wider world, and really just loving watching the the eyes light up as you would share out with youth about some of the hatchlings that would come onto the beach or or that would hatch out of the nests. Mm -hmm. And I just started diving a little bit deeper into the education aspect. My background was in environmental sciences. I never intended to become an educator. My mother says that as a young kid, I spent a lot of time showing that I was going to be an educator. (laughs) But I myself did not see it at the time. Mm. But after those few summers, I went back home and I re-enrolled in a program for education after college. And I went and started taking my education classes Mm. to find a way to mold environmental science and education together. I still love to work with sea turtles in a different capacity here in Florida, in Northeast Florida. And I've also had the pleasure of seeing those Honu in Hawaii and they're mm. pretty amazing creatures to, yes, they are. to be able to witness. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So here's a follow-up question. You know, as you have described here, you coordinated environmental activities for kids with a focus on coastal ecosystem management. So I wonder in what ways you helped kids become if even for a brief moment, managers of coastal ecosystems, including sea turtles. And there's a reason why I'm asking this is because I taught history, Ali, but my obsession over time became training kids to be historians rather than vessels that I would fill up with information. And so I wonder how that translates in terms of your training kids to be managers of coastal ecosystems, which is the real active part of the work, right? Absolutely. I think that youth just need to find ways to explore and develop their passions and see what is it that empowers them, what is it that drives them to change. And that's an ongoing effort, even within different ecosystems that we explore here in Northeast Florida, Mm. not just along the coastline, but also inland. We're going out into the field and doing field studies and citizen science activities on a regular basis around our schoolyard and then in our larger community. And with some club activities and field trips, we regularly go to the beach and do coastal cleanup activities, plastic pollution, marine debris tracking, Mm. trying to really help students see a larger view of how they can become true change makers within their community. Mm. And I think if they see that they can help to be a part of the community and to really make those changes, they start to develop out a larger awareness that it's something they could become as career pathways. They, they could you know take those steps towards career pathways mm. down the road. And many of them do. It's really just wonderful to be in touch with so many youth who have gone on to college programs and graduate studies and beyond who are still in touch and sharing some of their different adventures really where the passion started back years ago in our program. So I'm Mm. very lucky to have that nice circle of getting to be able to watch youth grow into young adults and then have families of their own and really making careers out of environmental sciences and different ways to to become those change makers in their community. Wow, that's awesome, Ali. And so kind of along the same lines... I have always thought that travel is one of the golden tickets to raising the professionalism of our teachers and education leaders. So teachers who travel or who had different careers in different locations, which is a form of travel, before they became teachers have wider horizons and are more comfortable with risk, in my humble opinion. So I know it might be impossible, Ellie, to narrow down to one choice, but what so far has been your most powerful, most generative travel moment? And in what ways did that moment impact or shift your approach to teaching and learning? And I'm curious, was it your trip to Costa Rica in the 11th grade or some other adventure much later? Boy, you're asking a tough question, Josh. (laughs) I know. To pick just one. (laughs) I know. It's hard. (laughs) Many people know that I openly call myself a self-proclaimed geo-geek. 
I definitely <laughs> have the wanderlust. I, I love to travel and explore and learn from new people and new cultures. But, you know, you mentioned the, the trip to Costa Rica when I was in the 11th grade. And I have to say that that definitely sparked that love for travel because mm. I was very much so out of my comfort zone. I was terribly homesick the first few days. I would walk a mile up the road to the payphone, which was mm. the only available communication. And I would call home crying and, you know, but I had always wanted to travel and I chose that. And after a few days, I just said, okay, this mm -hmm. is it. Let's embrace it. And never looked back and still have the opportunity to have some of my students travel with me to Costa Rica and have similar experiences for that exact reason to get outside of their comfort zone and see that they can take on a challenge and learn from new experiences. But in terms of choosing one, I would have to actually say that that trip of a lifetime just occurred. Oh. Yes. So you're asking me at quite a, a pivotal <laughs> time in my own personal and professional career. So. Awesome. I had the pleasure of being awarded as a Grosvenor Teacher Fellow in 2019 with National Geographic and Lindblad Expeditions. And because of the pandemic, had to patiently wait for three years mm -hmm. and had a chance to travel to Arctic Svalbard in June. And so north of the Arctic Circle, took quite a while to get there. Oh, my goodness, trying to describe the sensory overload mm. in the time that I was there in Arctic Svalbard. I have journals that I've kept from that time. And one of my journal entries sums everything up. It says, how do you perfectly reflect on a journey of a lifetime that seemed to disappear in the blink of the eye? Because the sensory experience, the, the sea ice and the white world of wonder that was up there and kayaking in the Arctic Ocean. How wow. many people can say they've kayaked in wow. the Arctic Ocean? Yeah. But it, at one point, I really wanted to experience sea ice in a new way. And so I started geeking out on sea ice. And I tell my students that now. I've been geeking out on sea ice ever since. But when we were kayaking, I had to go over and take a little piece off of an ice flow and I had to put it in my mouth. I had to see what sea ice tasted like. Mm. And I, I have no regrets. I, <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are about to embrace some new projects in the spring, helping to connect students here in Florida, where we obviously have no sea ice, mm. with some opportunities in the Arctic. And, and that trip really was just a pivotal moment for me. Arctic sea ice, there is so much going on there. And there are so many connections to education and youth can see and wonder what is so different from their ecosystem. There's just mm. so much there. Mm. So pivotal moment going on right now. Lots of deep reflection from that experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, I know this might seem like a random question, but because of all of you know the very sensory nature of a trip like that, how do you record for yourself all of the observations how do you how do you go about doing that it's almost like you're putting all of that into a suitcase that you're going to take back to your teaching <laughs> you know how, do you journal yes. how, how do you record all of that Quite a few things, actually. That's a fantastic question. I integrate a lot of GIS or geographic information systems and mapping into my curriculum, and my students are very familiar with it. So prior to the trip, I purposely set up an ArcGIS dashboard for my students to follow and track my movements and be able to track some of the things that I saw on the trip, as it also would upload pictures in the moment. Great in theory, except north of the Arctic Circle, the satellite reception, yeah. not so great. So we had a nice conversation upon my return about, you know, living in the first world and having access to technology until technology doesn't provide access. And, you know, we roll with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I also journaled throughout the time. Photography has become a side hobby and interest. And so trying to capture as many pictures and video as possible, interviewing crew members on the ship that I was on board, 
to be able to learn and share with my students some of their career opportunities that they've had. So just different ways to track and Mm -hmm. try to share the experience as much as possible. But with that being said, I think it's really important to take the time to put all of those things aside and just be Mm. in the moment. And the first day on board, I was on deck drinking coffee, just quiet by myself. And that was when we first saw the polar bear ahead of us. And just putting everything aside and watching this polar bear walk across the sea ice hunting, Mm. just being in that moment and knowing that very few people would ever have such an opportunity. I I think it's those moments that distractions need to go away and Mm. it's just important to be, just be. Just be right, exactly. I mean, I'm here it is December in Honolulu, and I'm looking forward to a trip that my wife and I are going to take. First time that we've been able to travel together since before the pandemic. And we're going up into the high mountains of New Mexico. And mm. I, I was actually thinking about this earlier today, about the idea that there, there need to be moments when you just put everything down, your phones and anything else, and just be in the moment, be the observer yes. in Hawaiian, we call it kilo, the ultra observer of what's going on around you. And it sounds like that's something that you drop into on a regular basis as you travel, right? Very, very much so. I think it's important to do that. You know, there's so much, so many distractions in our world these days. And those distractions are wonderful and can produce new innovative solutions to issues and can produce new communication opportunities but they also can sometimes detract from living in the moment and Mm. just taking in nature and seeing the beauty around you that's occurring. It's easy to miss some of those little cues. Mm. So, yeah. So we're going to come back to this topic after the break, but before we go to break, I want to take us in a slightly different direction and, and again, helping our listeners get to know you. You were named Florida's St. John's County 2022 Teacher of the Year. And I want to connect this to a comment your principal, Steve McCormick, made about you, saying pretty emphatically that you provide learning environments that foster creativity and discovery which I think is the holy grail in education, frankly. So, Ali, what is your secret sauce? What two, <laughs> what two or three things are a must when it comes to fostering curiosity and a sense of discovery in young people? And I know that's a huge question. It's, like a, <laughs> it's a lifetime question, yeah. Yes, it can be. I was going to say, I think it's a work in progress. I don't think... I don't think I've found that secret sauce yet, but I will tell you, Josh, I keep searching for it. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important thing as an educator to always try to figure out what it is that makes students tick. And that's a very kind thing for, for Steve to say. I actually had the pleasure of starting to work with Steve many, many years ago when I came into the school district as a very new teacher and have worked with him in different capacities. So I do appreciate he truly does know me as an educator for my teaching styles. And I think that it's so important in all of my years in education so far to constantly remind myself as well as ensure that the students know that they already have a lot of that creativity, a lot of that discovery within Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Students, youth are so incredibly insightful into different ways that they can change things that are going on in our society. Oftentimes, I think there's something that transitions from when we're youth and we're joyful and we're hopeful and we have a lot of big dreams. And as we become adults, for some reason, sometimes those things go away a little bit. We might become more cynical or we might see the world and new perspectives. 
But if we start to allow youth to really build on those dreams mm. and embrace their creativity and have moments of exploration and discovery, boy, oh boy, the things that they can do, they could solve a lot of our issues mm -hmm. in this world if adults would just listen to some of the ideas they have. So maybe the secret sauce is just to listen, listen mm. to the to our students, listen to our youth, ask them questions, think about the ideas that they have that they want to share with us. Some of those ideas are truly innovative. Mm -hmm. We have this project that we do each year called Project Innovation, and it's giving them an opportunity to explore different issues taking place in our local communities and then asking them, okay, so this is the issue. How do you solve it? And sometimes they get so upset that I will not do anything but play devil's advocate <laughs> <Yes>. with them. <laughs> mm -hmm. They get used to teachers telling them, this is what you need to know. And from an inquiry perspective, I take all of that away and I don't provide them with a lot of information. I often say, I'm not your teacher, I'm a facilitator. Mm -hmm. And I truly think that that is a key point to education these days is to be the facilitator helping to guide youth, but letting the youth make their own decisions, make their own mistakes, but then also through those mistakes, be able to have some really impactful outcomes that they came up with themselves. Mm -hmm. And boy, what they're coming up with, Josh, yeah. I have a lot of hope in our future. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I agree, Ali. I'm feeling so much hope right now, too. And it's partly because there's been almost an avalanche over the last maybe five years, and very much in all of these interviews that I've done for this podcast, an avalanche of conversation about listening to students and hearing what they're thinking about. And that connects me to yes. the idea that the, the latent curiosity and inquiry that they're born with will last much longer than than middle school, yes. that it'll end up in high school and then through their lives. And so I'm feeling hopeful about that because the volume's high on that conversation right now. It suggests, Absolutely. yeah, people are really Absolutely. talking about it. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting you mentioned middle school. I actually, that was when Steve McCormick hired me was as a middle school teacher for a short period of time as I moved from high school to middle school. And then when I was there, I thought, you know, there's so much that we can prepare these youth for after high school, yeah. for what happens when they graduate and become adults and take on careers. And that was my transition back to high school for that reason, because there's so much potential with career pathways that you can open their eyes to just by giving them those opportunities for exploration between their middle and high school grades. It's pretty powerful what they come up with. It really is. Absolutely. And we're going to actually talk about that a little bit more after the break. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Allie Pressel. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. 
If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Everyone, we are back with Ali Pressel, a National Geographic emerging explorer and coach, mentor, and guide to learners in St. John's County in the great state of Florida. So, Ali, in your resume under a PD heading, you listed the following Florida Master Naturalist at the University of Florida Master Naturalist Program 2019 to 2021. So I zeroed in on this because my daughter, Emma, is training super young kiddos in Marin County in California to be natural scientists and naturalists. And I started thinking about the long journey from you, Allie, being the small kiddo in New Jersey, to being a master naturalist and teacher in Florida. So what does it mean to gain this credential, this badge, if you will, And how did that program become infused into into your teacher DNA, even though it was only just a few years ago? Oh, I'm so excited that your daughter is going to be working on her naturalist opportunities and connections with youth in naturalist explorations in California. That's fantastic. The program, those naturalist courses are definitely broadening out to more and more states and more and more opportunities for youth and adults Mm. of all ages. But actually in Florida was where the Florida Master Naturalist, the University of Florida started the Master Naturalist coursework back in, I believe it was 1999. Mm. And I know that because I found an old article that my father cut out from a newspaper Mm. from the Philadelphia Inquirer that was highlighting this new program in Florida on becoming a master naturalist. Mm. So even back in 1999, he had already targeted that maybe (laughs) I would consider doing this. Wow. Having no idea at the time that I would be in Florida decades later and working on that. Mm. And the interest came about, I consider myself a naturalist. I've been interested in being outdoors and learning new things and even scientific names are rather fun to memorize in my opinion. I know that's a little odd, (laughs) but I really, I really enjoy, I, I think biodiversity is such an important thing, being aware of biodiversity, but also identity helps with awareness. And the more that you know something, that you know its name, that you understand its characteristics, that you recognize its place within its ecosystem or its habitat, the more aware you are to want to value it and conserve it and help to ensure it'll be there in the future. And I think that that naturalist perspective is something I try to instill in my students Mm. regularly with a lot of our classes and a lot of our activities. But the Florida Master Naturalist Program, when I moved to Florida, I did not know a lot of those species by names. Mm. I did not know a lot of the characteristics here in subtropical Florida, which were different from where I grew up in New Jersey in the Mm. mid-Atlantic. And I wanted to take the coursework 10 years ago, really, Mm. but it was the pandemic and having that time to shift into virtual learning for myself as well and being able to spend some time to learn new things that I was finally able to go ahead and complete the coursework, which can take quite a few months to do. But of course, now I can share all of that new learned material with students and help to make sure that they're aware of those species by name and that they recognize characteristics and different things going on in ecosystems right here in our backyard. So mm. I'm glad I had the opportunity to help connect youth to Florida ecosystems. It's wonderful. Yeah. Wow. That's just, that's so amazing to think about that. And I have no formal training, Ali, in natural sciences, but I, I often describe to people that I had two high school experiences. One was actually at high school, which was incredibly boring to me, very much siloed subjects, and I didn't find any relevancy in it. But I grew up on one of the great 
ocean bays in the world, Kaneohe Bay here on Oahu. And that was my real classroom. That's the place where I learned to be observant and to be aware of what was going on and what some of the ecological issues were that the Bay was facing at that time in the 70s when I was growing up. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I think about that a lot. And, And so kind of along the same lines, and again, you know, this is another question or the last question really that helps our listeners get to know you and and what makes you tick. You listed as influential E.O. Wilson's book, A Window on Eternity, which discusses, among other things, Wilson's argument that the balance of nature teeters on a razor's edge. So how have you navigated with your students the politics of the environment? What is your advice to science teachers who might be uh, yes. feeling anxiety about teaching science at this moment in our history when the facts are sometimes under assault, you know? Yes, yes. These are uh, these are good questions, Josh. <laughs> they really uh, It's quite a time to be in science education, no doubt. It's quite a time right now for many subjects as a teacher. But, you know, I think it's interesting Ed Wilson, I had the pleasure of meeting him a few years before wow. he passed. Mm. And I, I have to say it's it was one of those moments where you're meeting a role model that you have admired for years that you've just looked up to as a naturalist, as I mean, he he coined the term biophilia because he really understood those connections in biodiversity. So to meet him was just you know, I was I was set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as I was talking earlier about awareness with youth, I think that's such an important component to education these days. And even with E.O. Wilson's writings, he transitioned from some very formal writings in his early years as a professor at Harvard to, towards the end of his life, focusing on writings that were much more accessible for audiences. And that includes youth. And so Window on Eternity and a few other books towards the end of his life were really focused on how do we bring environmental awareness to the larger audience, to local communities, to youth within those communities, to the people that are living day in and day out in their communities and needing to find connections to the species, the ecosystems, life around them other than human life. And Window on Eternity, while it focuses on his time in Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, Mm -hmm. really ultimately the writing is about finding that balance in nature, how our diversity is intimately linked to complex biodiversity in general with, with different ecosystems. And goodness, if we start pulling at one thread and we find it's connected to everything else, there are so many unknown consequences with some of the things that our Mm -hmm. anthropocentric focus is really causing challenges with. And we're seeing a lot of those challenges trickle down into our classrooms, into different subject areas, including science, because we are starting to see some real changes and and concerns that are taking place in the world. But it all comes back to that interconnectedness. Mm. And ultimately, I believe Wilson was trying to demonstrate that there is hope. Fundamentally, Mm. there is hope. A light at the end of the tunnel, if we can just listen to new solutions, innovative solutions, that -hmm. there are ways that we can change our path at this point. Mm -hmm. He also started a project recently called Half Earth a few years before his passing. And the Half Earth project is focusing just on that. Mm -hmm. How can we provide more opportunity to share that hope with future generations and help them drive the change with biodiversity and and with seeing our connections to the larger ecosystem of Mm. our earth. Mm. So Ali, that's an absolutely perfect segue into this next kind of section, which is a little bit more about the specifics of your educator practice. And so for a minute, I want to talk about student-driven learning through real-world challenges, which are themes we care a lot about at What School Could Be. And recently, I have become 
obsessed with author Zoe Weil's concept called the solutionary, which in short is someone who identifies inhumane, unsustainable, and unjust systems, and then develops solutions to transform them so that they are restorative, healthy, and equitable for people, animals, and the environment. And I'm moved, Ali, by the incredible responsibilities one assumes if one becomes a solutionary or is in training to become a solutionary. So my question is, I wonder if you could share one or two specific examples of students engaging their communities through citizen field science and real world challenges in the area of natural resource management that led them deeper into the concept of being a solutionary or being a shaper of the future, perhaps, as you mentioned a second ago. Absolutely. Last year, as we were getting back into some of our norms, our classroom norms, if you will, we had opportunities to resume field trips and field experiences for the first time. And my junior and seniors decided that they wanted to do something a little bit different. And it's been a long time since we took on what what I call a service learning project Mm -hmm. within our community. Mm -hmm. But a nearby elementary school had reached out and expressed an interest in renovating an old courtyard into an outdoor learning space and garden area. And I am so proud of our students. They not only embraced this year-long project of going over to the elementary school regularly and tearing out old plants and old debris Mm. and areas of this courtyard that were run down, but then also researching what were native plants that they could put into this courtyard to teach Mm. younger students about what were the best fruits and vegetables that they could teach students to grow in their own garden space. And on top of everything, they decided that they wanted to focus on the concern of water resources in Mm. our community. Mm. And so to celebrate World Water Day in March of this past year, they created a series of different activities and lessons that the youth in K through five grades could go around and learn from each of the high school students, some of the different issues surrounding water resources and then water pollution within our community Mm. and trying to build in fun activities while still having those learning experiences. It was the best day, Josh. My students are still talking about that experience Mm. and they still want to go back this year. So we are talking about putting together the second annual World Water Day Mm. for the nearby elementary school. And I think that that's a perfect example with service learning Mm -hmm. of finding ways that you can connect science curriculum to the larger community look for some needs that the community has and really embrace the learning experience by empowering those youth to go out and create the lessons themselves Mm. and be able to share out what they know about natural resource management with a younger audience that is interested and curious to learn themselves. Mm -hmm. Just an awesome project. Wow. I'm almost speechless, but not quite. two, (laughs) Two things. One is that I actually did my master's in service learning, my master's in education foundations. And wow, Ali, that story ranks up there right in the the top three of stories that I encountered about remarkable service learning programs. And, you know, I'm absolutely going to make sure that Zoe Weil hears your response, because I think that's one of the best examples I've heard yet of what it means to actually train young people into that solutionary mindset. It's a 360 degree approach where you're looking at at every possible angle of something. And so that's really cool. So, okay, so I want to come back to something that you talked about a little bit earlier, which is mapping. And so I have actually a whole question built around that. There's not 
nearly enough time, Allie, to dig into your whole resume. <laughs> your, your resume is like a huge prairie of wildflowers in bloom, I swear. But there are a couple of things I want to dive into. So you listed as a strength your National Geographic coursework, and one of your elements was, and I quote, mapping as a visualization tool in your classroom. So I love mapping of any kind. And I wonder if you can give our listeners specific examples of how you used mapping to help your students visualize and engage in the learning. Wow, yes. Mapping is not part of our curriculum, actually. It's something that I have been actively and mindfully integrating into our classroom for over a decade now. And I think it's fundamentally the reason that I do that is because Mapping is so important to helping students with that visualization that you were just referring to. Mm -hmm. And if they can visualize something, for example, if they can visualize change, then they can think about new ways that they can help Mm. that change. Mm -hmm. And within our community, we are one of the fastest communities in the nation. So not just within Florida right now, but around the country. And our students are physically seeing land use changes taking place within our community. Mm. Every month, every year, we are witnessing changes with land use towards housing developments and commercial properties. Students have witnessed habitat deforestation, Mm. habitat fragmentation. They've seen species change even on our school campus, Mm. what we used to view on campus and what we don't see now. And there is a small wetland that exists behind our school Mm. that is one of our favorite areas to go and explore. Mm. We do our forest studies out there, soil resources, water resources. We look at the wetland and the species within it. And we've been able to truly track some of the changes to that little wetland ecosystem over the years that our school has been open. Mm. It's just a one acre area, but it has had so much change from all of the growth that it really does provide an opportunity for students to see firsthand and visualize. Mm. And so we actually use some of the old maps from prior to the school being built. Right. And we compare those old satellite, early satellite imagery. Mm -hmm. Some of them are pretty basic. And then we compare it to satellite imagery today. And we look at them side by side and we help students see the change that has taken place even in just over a 10-year period at that school and looking at the wetland as it's starting to dry out from human influences around it and then going out there and using citizen science applications and GIS to, on their phones, be able to look at some of those changes to water levels, to precipitation rates, to different species that are coming into the area as the wetland grows out, being able to visually see those connections with the satellite imagery that they were using, it really enhances their sense of place. Mm. This is where I live and this is what's changing. Now, what can I do about it since it's in my own community? Mm. And I think Mm. if you can empower youth to ask themselves on their own, how can I work with this? What can I do? Boy, it it really just, Mm. again, empowerment. It will allow them to drive their own passion, drive their own curiosity to Mm. see how they can change their community. You know, Ali, I've been hearing, you know, a lot of conversations around growth mindset, and we talk about other types of mindsets, a designer's mindset. You're actually talking about something we might call a mapping mindset, and it's a transferable <laughs> skill, right? I mean, isn't that's yes. really what's happening? Because if they even if they don't go into the natural sciences and become scientists, what they're doing in their lives is is creating a process of greater awareness of everything that's happening around you and change. And noticing Absolutely. That. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one of the wonderful things is the students start to see that they can use this visualization in their other subject areas. Yeah. They don't have to just use it within the sciences. They can use it in other forms with social studies and language and just different ways to connect in, mm. in many passions and pursuits that they have. Mm. So, 
Yeah, some of them go on to other careers that have nothing to do with the sciences, and they still communicate with me that they're using mapping in some form. Mm. So it's wonderful. You know, I, I might be the history teacher across the hall who's obsessed with training my my young people to be historians, and you and I are going to have a conversation about mapping because I think this is a partnership that's about to begin, right? Love it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's Absolutely. awesome. So, Ali, before we go to our second break, one more question. You shared with me that you are leading an initiative called the Citizen Science Exchange Network. And oh boy, just reading those words put jet fuel in my tank and I knew nothing about its details. So what is this initiative and what has you so excited about it? Well, it's it's fairly young and it's still definitely in development. But as I mentioned earlier, my time in Svalbard being able to be a Grosvenor teacher fellow and seeing new opportunities to connect youth with new experiences outside of our area. There's been a few other connections and travels I've had recently that have additionally linked me to youth with citizen science in Kazakhstan and citizen science in Costa Rica, taking place in Machu Picchu area of Peru. Mm. And I keep thinking about all of these different locations still have some fundamental ways that youth in those areas can link in and connect with their natural world Mm -hmm. through citizen science. And so my long-term dream is that the Citizen Science Exchange Network would be a platform space for different educators in different locations globally to help bring their youth that they teach to connect with each other also in different locations Mm. to truly help enable youth to be able to link together, see similarities and differences to their homes and their sense of place and truly develop a global geographic mindset, Mm. seeing what is different about their space, but also what can they embrace and value about their space? And equally, how can they value other places that are different from their own? Mm. And so we will see how it comes to fruition. I am an eternal dreamer (laughs) and have large lofty goals. (laughs) But, you know, I was in Kazakhstan for just one week this past summer, working with youth on a young explorers program that had never worked with GIS and mapping software before, Mm. and just asking them to document their sense of place and then do some citizen science in three days time, Josh, three days. They created the most phenomenal stories using maps. Mm. And I thought, if they can do this with citizen science and mapping in three days, we can do this in so many other capacities in so many other places and then link these students together. Wow. So we'll yeah. see. We'll, we'll see. see. That's awesome. And that's a perfect moment for us to take another break. Hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Ali Pressel. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, we are back with Ali Pressel, a National Geographic emerging explorer who has a love for travel and a deep desire to bring geographic experiences into her classroom. 
So Allie, you were working on a personal initiative called Elevate Educators in St. John's County, which promotes collaborative opportunities among educators within your school system and elevates educators to find their voice within the teaching profession within your community. And I was like, wow, I need to know more. So let's say I will donate to you a marketing and fundraising expert at no cost, and I will give you a substantial C grant. So let's remove money as an object here. What's the vision and mission of this personal project and where would you like to take it? Wow. Well, you know, Josh, educators are used to not having a lot of money yeah, as they're getting creative with their funds. <laughs> Very so true. So we could still do a lot with that. No worries. Okay. <laughs> I think ultimately the purpose with Elevate Educate, well, I should back up a little bit. I was very surprised to be recognized as Teacher of the Year for the school district, very flattered and humbled. But at the same time, it was a moment of struggle for myself. I don't really like center stage Mm -hmm. and I tend to wish for my students to shine, but I'd rather be in the background. I don't like the limelight Mm -hmm. so much. So I really had to take some time to personally reflect on how could I embrace the role and make it truly meaningful if I was going to be a role model of a teacher, knowing that I had plenty of faults in my education experiences. You know, we're always trying to be gracefully building ourselves and, and getting better at our profession. But Elevate Educators was really an opportunity for me to think about how no educator is perfect. And it's a hard time in education right now for many people. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there are so many skills that each educator brings. But beyond skills, there is so much passion that they have. They're, They're there because they have a calling. They want to help their students. They want to help youth in their different subject areas. And it can sometimes feel like a silo. You're out there Mm -hmm. on your own. You're trying to figure things out. You have many eyes on you during the class period, and you're trying to figure things out in the moment. And I wanted to find a way for educators to feel like they could support each other work through some of the current struggles going on in the classroom, but also not have any of those struggles compromise what they're teaching to their students, what they're helping their students embrace. And the idea with Elevate Educators is to bring educators together in an opportunity for an opportunity space, I should say, for collaboration and networking without feeling as though there's any competition or concerns about evaluations and Mm. judging of their practices, but helping them to build relationships with each other Mm. and feeling as though those relationships were supportive and meaningful that each educator can grow in their practice while they're also growing in their profession and growing Mm. in themselves. I had the opportunity to work with a number of educators from around the country on an advisory council just prior to the pandemic. And during the pandemic, those educators connecting with them really helped to keep me grounded Mm -hmm. and motivated and inspired to make it through the pandemic and to be the best teacher I could be for my students. Mm. And if we can bring that into our local communities and provide those networking opportunities for educators to come together and help to elevate, motivate, and inspire each other, boy, the things that that we can do Mm. with education that network is oftentimes a fundamental thing that is unfortunately overlooked in educational systems. Mm -hmm. But I think building relationships has to happen before being able to add rigor into your classroom learning Mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. And those relationships, we say they matter with the students all the time, but those relationships really matter between your colleagues between educators in different classroom spaces as well. Mm. So, yeah, that's awesome. You know, Ali, I remember just as the first lockdowns were happening at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a group of us here 
in Honolulu who sort of sensed that this was one of those moments that you were describing. And we just sprang into action and put together a virtual conference. And nobody had ever done a virtual conference before. You know, <laughs> yes. that was that seems like such a long time ago and so many Zoom calls ago, right? But I remember yes. I remember that we used Eventbrite and when we opened the Eventbrite, it was a free event, but we sold out in about 20 minutes. And that was 250 educators signed up to be part of that. Wow. And I That's just awesome. I think it's just testament to the idea that educators are always trying to figure out ways to connect with each other. And there are so many things that get in the way. And so I, I'm yes. excited for you that Elevate Educators is going to be one of those mechanisms that brings people together and creates opportunities for relationships to be built, right? Thank you. Thank you. It is, it's a work in progress. We've had over the past year, there's been some opportunities to connect, and we've had some great response from educators within our community. I'd love to be able to see even a greater response this year as we're getting ready to celebrate for our Teacher of the Year celebrations. Mm. And, you know, similarly, Josh, I had sent out a survey with some additional ideas for Elevate Educators a few months ago. And there is a lot of response from educators. It really does help to connect yep. them from different schools, from different age groups and different subject areas and people that we wouldn't normally meet in our typical wheelhouse day in and day out. Mm. So hopefully we can really provide more opportunities for that networking so that more teachers can feel as though they have a supportive space to be able to grow together in this profession. Yeah, and that's a nice circle back to the beginning when we were talking about finding out what kids are thinking. Finding out what teachers are thinking is equally important. They're two populations yes. that live with each other day in and day out. And so that's important as well. That's great. So yes, Ali, we've got just a couple more things to cover as we come into the home stretch here. I just finished reading a book called The Good Ancestor by Roman Krisnarik. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. And in it, the author lays out a series of six prompts that he calls Good Ancestor Questions. And I, I love these six questions so much already. And I decided each podcast going forward is going to feature one of those questions, that a guest will get one of those questions. And so here's the one that I chose for you. What do you think, Ali, should be the ultimate goal of the human species? <laughs> mm. You just have, you got to laugh when you say wow. the question because it's just so ginormous, right? But yeah, I, go light there, Josh. Go Thanks. light, yes, I know. <laughs> Wow, the ultimate goal of the human species. I'm going to have to read this book. I'm very intrigued. It's amazing. It's a truly amazing work. It's quite changed the axis of my world wow. in just a few weeks. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. The ultimate goal, I would have to say, is to always aim to be good stewards. Mm. I think the word stewardship comes to mind. And I, I think that often, Oftentimes, we tend to take a very anthropocentric view in our society and assume that you know we're at the top. Yeah. As as I am always thinking about it from that naturalist perspective, we do as humans tend to to have that anthropocentric view. But I would have to say, if we are intelligent beings, then it's also our responsibility to act intelligently mm. and be good stewards of those ecosystems that we live in, of the ecosystems that we depend on for our own survival. I mean, we might be highly intelligent beings, but these ecosystems are necessary for our lives too. So I think the ultimate goal, if we want to ensure our legacies, would have to be aiming to be good stewards mm. of the world around us so that we can ensure sustainable options for future generations, mm. really. 
I wonder, Ali, if there has been anything that's come across your radar screen in the last little bit, weeks, months, years, that gives you a sense of hope about the human species acting intelligently in the way that you describe. Anything jump to mind? There's many things. Mm. (laughs) I think that if you're an educator, you have eternal hope in many ways because you're always trying to find new ways to pass that hope along Mm. to the next generation and and really hope that they embrace it to be able to, to drive opportunities for change. But, you know, I was mentioning that recent experience in Kazakhstan and watching those Mm. young students who spoke a different language, had a different cultural background. Even among each other, they each spoke different dialects from a very nomadic, historically nomadic peoples. And yet they came together in a few short days and created these amazing storytelling experiences Mm. about their communities and things that they were seeing in their communities. And if our youth around the world can do that in just a few days' time, imagine what solutions they can provide to some of our biggest challenges, whether it be climate change or populations or loss of biodiversity or habitat issues, these youth have the answers. We just have to listen. And if they can do that in three days, I absolutely have hope Mm. in our future. That's awesome. What a great story. And that brings us, Ali, to the last question, which is, as you know, I, I love to end episodes with guests talking about the giants upon whose shoulders they stand. So, <laughs> Allie, who is Angela Hensley? Am I saying her last name correctly? Oh, Hensley? yes, Angela Hensley. Yeah. In yes. what ways? In what ways did she impact the arc of your life and your journey as an <laughs> educator? Wow. And she she is still a friend and still very much in education within the community that I teach. Oh, that's awesome. But Angie Hensley took a chance on me at a time when I was coming into transitioning from middle back to high school and really starting to grow into a professional educator and provided me with the opportunity to start leading this environmental science career academy program in our Mm. community. Mm. And not only did she support all of my crazy big dreams and and possibilities that I had for our curriculum here in the state of Florida, but also helped me to find autonomy in my teaching and to be able to embrace new ideas that were outside of our curriculum. Mm. For example, the GIS and the mapping software that we integrate today is very much because Angie allowed me to start adding in new ways of helping students make those geographic Mm. perspective changes in our classroom. Mm. Additionally, I mentioned that I don't really like center stage. I knew that about myself early on. I've been an introvert for a long time, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) But as a teacher, to be an introvert is... It can be very challenging. It can also provide a lot of moments of reflection because you are in front of students for most of the day. But it was actually in front of other colleagues that were my age that I knew I struggled the most with. Mm. And so I approached Angie, I think it was in 2010 or 2011, and I asked her if I could start facilitating workshops Mm. at conferences so that I could step outside of my comfort zone and start really challenging myself to work more one-on-one with colleagues and with, Mm. with other educators. And those workshops turned into national conference facilitations and help to really drive some of the opportunities I had later and Mm. have had continuously in my career. And I really just appreciate her taking the time to say, yes, Mm. Allie's asked for this. She's trying to challenge herself. Let's see what happens. Mm. And that autonomy for an educator to have autonomy in their classroom and autonomy in their professional learning themselves, it really makes an impact for what you're able to then provide to your students. Mm. So I'm grateful for Angie and I'm proud to to be able to still call her a friend, though I have not 
been able to work with her in a professional capacity for the past few years, but mm -hmm. I, I greatly appreciate all that she has provided with support over the years for my professional learning. That's great, Allie. And, and what we'll do is we'll dedicate this episode to Angie as one of those models of empowerment, right? And that, that just kind of brings it all to a, a perfect close here at the end of this conversation. So, Allie, this has been incredible and inspiring. Thank you. We at What School Could Be wish you and your family a very happy 2022 holiday season and a well-earned break and, and a very, very happy new year. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. This was truly a pleasure to connect. I really appreciate your time. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>